shouldn't have interfered, number six. You'll pay for this. You will. You think you're strong? Hmm. We'll see. You must emboss order hammer sign. You must be anvil or hammer. I see you know your ghetto. Can you see me as the anvil? Precisely. I am going to hammer you. Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, a man who really appreciates a good cuckoo clock. My co-host is Guy, who enjoys sports involving trampolines. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So are you headed for the trampoline Olympics? Oh, no, actually, I just prefer to watch women's beach trampoline. <laughs> That's a new one on me. Okay. So I think today's episode, which is Hammer into Anvil, is a very interesting one, but I really don't have any context for it. There's no background documentary. There's nothing in the episode that I think requires explanation. It just kind of speaks for itself. So mm -hmm. unless you have something to say here, we'll just jump into it. Yeah, let's go. Okay. Let's go to Hammer into Anvil. And we start off, uh, this is, I'm going to say right up front, this is a dark episode. Mm. None of the episodes really are comedies, but <laughs> this one, boy, our first images were in the hospital and there's a woman in bed and her wrists are bandaged and someone we can't see is asking her why she slashed her wrists. So right up front, no question <laughs> what happened. Mm -hmm. She is clearly very upset. And in this case, it seems she's not a spy. It seems it's, it's her husband that they need information about. So presumably her husband is a spy or someone of interest to the village mm -hmm. and they want to know where he is. And she refuses to cooperate. She says he's busy. And now we see number two, he's the actor, Patrick Cargill. We'll talk about later. And he kind of excitedly unzips an envelope and pulls out some pictures and says that she knows her husband has been cheating on her, which she denies. And he goes into some detail about how he's been going to this woman's hotel and how they spent time on a vacation together. And by the way, would she like to see some photos and know when they took them? And he lays the hmm. photo down in front of her. And he clearly is kind of relishing this. Mm-hmm. She just clams up. It's not helping the situation. She's just very upset. And he decides he's tired of waiting for answers. And he starts to walk toward her. And we see her eyes get big. And then we go to an outside shot. And number six is walking nearby the hospital. And he hears a scream. And something about this really triggers him. And he instantly runs to the hospital, runs inside. There's plenty of staff around. None of them are paying any attention. You know, he pushes past all of them, goes upstairs, mm. finds the room where he's hearing the screaming, goes in. When he comes in, he sort of interrupts whatever's going on. And the woman takes this opportunity to jump out the window to her death. Yeah. So this is like the first 30 seconds of this episode. We have a woman yeah. who tried to commit suicide and then did commit suicide. Yeah. 
I wonder, you know, with the philandering husband, I wonder if she's supposed to be married to James Bond. <laughs> well, then I think she would know what was up. But <laughs> And right here in this first, you know, whatever, 30 seconds, minute, we get the theme of the episode put right in front of us. Number two is angry at number six and says he will pay for his interference. And number six mutters, no, you will. And he leaves. And and that little interaction is basically the episode. Yeah. We just expand on it from here. <laughs> we go to number six's apartment and he is pacing agitatedly. He's trying to figure out what he's going to do. The phone rings. It's number two insisting that he immediately come to his office. Number six refuses and hangs up and then goes for a walk. And we're outside. <laughs> I think they've used this location a couple times and it's really clearly not the village. It's really clearly just some grassy area in England <laughs> hmm. and he's walking along a little roadway and a buggy rushes up and some thugs jump out and have a big fight with them and wrestle them into the buggy. Apparently this number two doesn't know the trick that you just wait till he's going to go to sleep and then drug him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but this number two doesn't really like to wait, I don't That's think. That's true. We would have had to, to <laughs> you know, have a little bit of patience. So now we're in number two's office, and he is annoyed, of course, at being brushed off by number six. And again, just going right for the darkness, he's holding a, a rapier in a sheath, and he unsheaths the rapier and brings it over to number six where he's sitting. And he starts waving the point around near his eyes. And a little background thing here. McGowan had a really hard time doing this scene because he was very sensitive about his eyes. And I think anybody having a blade mm -hmm. going back and forth just a couple inches from your eyes is going to be difficult to deal with. Oh, sure. Number two says each man has his breaking point and he takes the rapier and he pokes number six in the forehead and he's delighted that number six flinches. Mm -hmm. So clearly just by far the cruelest number two we've had so far yeah before this they always had a little bit of playfulness to them or you know intellectual curiosity mm, yeah yeah i'm trying to think of if there i know there have been some that i've thought of as being more evil than others i can't pinpoint any of them so i'll, I'll take your word for it he, he could <laughs> well be the cruelest we've had and number two says he wants to know what is going on in number six's head right now and number six says disgust mm -hmm. and number two slaps him and number two, uh, number two seems to enjoy slapping people too. <laughs> yeah. Do that again before it's all said and done. And just to bring it home, number two says a German phrase and number six translates it. You must be anvil or hammer. And number two says, I see, you know, your Goethe and says, I am going to hammer you. <laughs> Here is a, maybe the key point in the episode. Number two gets a call and it's the big red phone, which we haven't seen in a while. It's the big red phone that we saw in ABC when yes, number uh, one was harassing that guy. It's the number one hotline. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to show up whenever the number two is kind of on the rocks, you know? <laughs> and he answers it and tells number one that everything is fine. And we can infer that number one offers to send him assistance and number two is offended says he doesn't need any assistance. He'll be fine. He can manage. And the way he answers this, you see number six notice. Mm -hmm. They clearly flag something for him. And after number two hangs up, 
number six says you were saying something about a hammer <laughs> and it's clear that it was very bad timing on number one's part by calling number two at that moment he deflated the whole idea that number two is in charge and reminds both of them that number one is in charge yeah number two is upset about this yells at him to get out and this is really unusual and again it's just this little clue i think for the rest of the episode number six says thank you very much <laughs> and gets up and leaves. And I, I think he's saying, you know, now I have all the information I need. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Number six generally isn't big on the thank yous and so <laughs> forth. And on the way out, number two can't resist. And he yells at number six that he's going to break him. <laughs> and he then calls the supervisor. It took me a bit to realize the supervisor is a guy we see all the time. He's a bald guy in the control room. Yeah. Actually a guy I kind of like, I mean, you know, he works for an evil organization, but he seems to be, <laughs> you know, decent employee. <laughs> yeah. He's the guy, he's got the kind of horn rimmed glasses, not quite horn rimmed, I guess, but it's almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Number two tells him he wants special levels of surveillance for number six. And I'm like, what could they do? <laughs> They've already got 12 cameras <laughs> in his apartment and following him with audio and video constantly, but somehow he wants more. <laughs> well, they can, they can have an extra person watch the monitors in case the other guy blinks. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we go outside and number six is walking away from number two's building with purpose. And it's clear he already has a plan. He walks by the local store, which we've dealt with many times, and he notices they have a sign in the window mm -hmm. about music. Uh, do you remember the slogan, what music makes for a quiet mind? Uh, something like that. Yeah. Very that are very close to it because yeah, that comes up again later. Yeah. And he clearly thinks about it for a moment and then he walks into the store. We notice that today's newspaper that they're selling the, the tally ho, the main headline is increased vigilance call from the new number two. And number six grabs one of those and he then browses the albums that are on sale. And he says he wants to listen to a lot <clears throat> Talarzian? La, Can you say it better than me? <laughs> uh, I guess it's Larlesian, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it sounds better than me. It's by a French composer, Bizet. So the store owner grabs him one, and he kind of shocks him by saying, no, I want all of them. So they have like six copies of the album. He wants to listen to every copy. And the owner says, but they're all the same. Number six says, I doubt it. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I think when we've seen the grocer in the past, it's been a different actor. I think this guy's a new one. Yeah, that guy who was in the first episode and was also in Checkmate was kind of a stout guy, kind of, you know, jolly sort of looking person. Mm -hmm. But who knows? I mean, at the end of Checkmate, well, they did betray number six. He had been cooperating with them. So, you mm, know, yeah. <laughs> he might have been dealt with at that point. <laughs> yeah, it could be. <laughs> Number six goes over to the listening station. So I don't know if they still do this in places that actually sell records and stuff, but they used to have these like plastic things on the wall that you'd put your head into an enclosure that you would put your mm -hmm. head into. So you could listen to a record without disturbing everyone else in the store. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, uh, I mean, record stores nowadays are to tend to be selling like used stuff, you know, because mm -hmm. most. People nowadays buy those downloads, that newfangled stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so he uses the listening station and he listens to several copies of the record for a few seconds and he'll, he'll play just a few seconds 
And then he looks at his watch and then he puts away that record and he gets the next one and listens to the same few seconds. And eventually he finds one that interests him and he makes a note and does something to his copy of the Tally Ho. And then he returns the records to the owner, says it's not a very satisfactory recording, and uh, accidentally leaves his tally-ho behind. <laughs> accidentally in yeah. quotes, yeah. <laughs> so after he leaves, the store owner sees that on the tally-ho, he's circled the word security that's in one of the headlines, and he's put a question mark near it. And so with all this suspicious behavior, the store owner immediately calls number two, urgent message for him. Mm. And we are switched to number two's office. And we can see he is at the end of one of the records. So he's listened to every single one of the records all the way through aside. <laughs> yeah, the grocer must have forgot to mention that he only needed to do the first 10 or 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah. And he says, they all sound identical. The sleeves are the same. What's this all about? Then the store owner shows him the tally-ho with security circled on it. And the store owner leaves and number two turns on video of number six's apartment to see what he's up to. And number six is at his desk writing something on a little notepad. He tears off the page and puts it in his jacket. And then he looks at the next page of the notepad and he tears that off too. Now, he didn't write anything on there, but I think the idea is he doesn't want to leave behind a page that would have an impression of what he wrote. Mm -hmm. And he takes that also and leaves his apartment. So, of course, number two immediately needs to see what he wrote. And he sends number 14, who was one of the goons earlier who brought in to search his apartment. Number six clandestinely sees who was sent to search his apartment. Number 14 goes in and he takes the next blank page from the notebook and brings it to number two. And number two places it in some kind of scanner. And number 14's curious and kind of steps up behind him. And number two immediately gets suspicious and tells him he's, he can leave now. And we'll see this happen over and over again with number 14. <laughs> and he, number two turns on the scanner and he does, it is able to pick up the message that number six had written. And it says to X04, referencing your query via the Bizet record, number two's instability confirmed. Detailed report follows, signed by D6. <laughs> and number two buys this completely. He says, number six, a plant? <laughs> yeah. Now, when he says this, I'm thinking, oh, there's some rival organization putting a plant in the village. <laughs> but but we find out later that actually number two suspects that XO4 is a plant from the organization mm. that runs the village, uh, not an mm. outside enemy. And that that ends up revealing something more, well, something we already pretty much knew, but that the organization can be very sneaky and shifty even among itself. Right. And it, we've seen it a little bit before, but this episode's really going to rely on the fact that they're so secretive that their own employees have to be suspicious of everything. Right. And their own employees don't feel like they know everything, which gives number six the ability to screw with them. Yeah. And we're back to number six's apartment and he's lying in bed dressed and doing some reading. And at a certain time, he suddenly gets up, takes a sheaf of paper and leaves in the darkness. And of course he's being watched on video by number two and number 14. And they leave number two's office to follow him. And as number six heads to the beach, number two sends number 14 to follow. 
And number six goes to the good old stone boat. <laughs> After he leaves the stone boat, they go and search it and they find the sheaf of papers, take him back to number two's office. Once again, number 14 is very curious and wants to see what's on the papers. And number two, once again, tells him to get out. It's none of his business. <laughs> or see, you know, you know, this sort of thing, number two is slowly closing himself off from his own loyal employees. Mm -hmm. Number two starts to read the paper, but he can't because it's just a bunch of blank pages. Mm -hmm. So he immediately calls the lab and insists that they test these pages, but he has no idea what for. And when the lab guy is confused, number two gets upset and yells at him. He tells him there's something there. Use, you know, x-ray, infrared, whatever it takes. <laughs> the lab guy is just confused and he's kind of staring at number two. Number two says, what are you staring at? Get on with it. So again, he's kind of alienating one more employee. The lab can't find anything. They've run it through all their machines. It's just blank paper. The lab guy knows he's going to be in trouble, but he goes back to number two and says there's nothing there. Number two says the lab guy may be in on it. He's hiding the message from number two to help number six. And again, the lab guy is just thoroughly confused and kind of staring at number two. Clearly his staff <laughs> is beginning to think he's cracking. And they're right. <laughs> Yeah, and we go to number six, and again, I'll come back to this, but this story just doesn't stop, and number six doesn't stop, and I think it comes back <laughs> to that. You know, when number two said he was going to hammer number six, <laughs> mm -hmm. that's what number six is doing to him. He just keeps doing this stuff. So he immediately <laughs> goes to order a personal message for the newspaper, and he gives them a, a phrase in Spanish that's from Don Quixote. The newspaper woman recognizes one word in there, which is village. We'll see later. And there's more than one translation, but what I got is there is more evil in the little village than is heard. Yeah. And I think later, later they'll translate it as something like there's more harm in the village than, than is dreamt. And I know the last word of that phrase was some form of the word sueño, like sueñar or something. And sueño is dream, hmm. which I learned from Ghost Recon Wildlands. <laughs> Because the bad guy is El Sueño. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you know, we learn useful things from games. Yep. Again, number six isn't going to stop, so immediately after he's ordered this message, he goes to a public phone, and he calls the head of psychiatrics at the hospital. And he says, what's the verdict on our friend? And this <laughs> head of psychiatrics has no idea what he's talking about, and he says, well, your report on number two. And again, the doctor's like, says he doesn't know what he's talking about. And number six says, oh yes, it's wise not to talk on the telephone. We'll see each other later. <laughs> and instantly we're back in number two's office and he has a tape with the phone conversation there and he's playing it back to the doctor and he's insisting that the doctor explain what this conversation was about. And the doctor of course has no idea, says he doesn't know who called him, doesn't know what it was about. And this is interesting. <laughs> I think tells us something about, again, what this episode is really about. Number two spends the next several minutes of screen time going to silly links to prove that it was number six who called the doctor on the phone. He gets an oscilloscope yeah. and he plays the tape into the oscilloscope and he puts the sound signatures up on the screen. And of course the doctor yeah, doesn't care that it was number six. Oh yeah, yeah. The that that point is not in dispute. I mean, the doctor's just saying, "I don't know this guy." <laughs> it has nothing to do with who the guy is. 
So yeah, number two is going off on this kind of pointless tangent that uh, shows that he's maybe not thinking entirely clearly. (laughs) Right. Right. So after he goes through all these steps to prove it, he says, do you still plead innocent? You aren't preparing a report on my mental health. They have a big argument and the doctor has perfectly reasonable answers to number two's accusations, which only makes number two more upset. And when he, the doctor finally says, why don't you ask number six what he was about? Number two blows up and says, do you want to sit in my chair? Do not tell me what to do. So one, (laughs) one more loyal employee has been offended. Yeah. And now number six is back at it. So in the bandstand we've seen before where they like to play marching music and such, number six goes up to the band leader and asks him to play a song that turns out to be another song from the Bizet album. And he walks away and they start playing. And instantly we're in number two's office again, and he's interrogating the (laughs) band leader. And it's another long discussion with the band leader now getting to be the person who's thoroughly confused. And number two accuses him of lying. He says, you're all lying, throws him out of the office. And now we're number six is at the woman's grave who had jumped out the window and there's some fresh flowers there. So presumably number six brought them. Mm -hmm. And as he's leaving, he notices a nearby grave for number 113. And this gives him an idea. (laughs) And we're now at the halfway point. After leaving the graveyard, it may be worth mentioning this, I don't think, is the same graveyard as we saw in one of the earlier episodes that was right on the beach. Mm. Looked like it might be flooded out every time the <laughs> tide rolled in. This was more in a sort of wooded environment. Mm. Anyway, after after visiting that graveyard, number six goes into the village and he drops a piece of paper in a post box. It's just a plain rectangular box labeled post. It's not, you know, the village doesn't have the... English cylindrical ones or the U.S. rounded top mailboxes. That's just a box. (laughs) But he drops a piece of paper in there. We see in the war room, the supervisor we discussed earlier, he opens up that paper. I think he's making a radio broadcast. Well, it's, I think it's just the normal broadcast around the village when they say the weather and that sort of thing. It's a PA announcement. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, he reads a personal message for number six from number 113. And of course, that was the gravestone that he just saw. Number two in his office, he's on the phone. He hears this announcement and he he interrupts his call to listen to it. The message on the paper was, warmest greetings on your birthday. May the sun shine on you today and every day. (laughs) So number two pulls out some hardbound books. It looks like they might be village yearbooks. Well, I think these are, uh, you know, we saw some of the number twos were really into it, like Leo McKern, where they have for each member of the village, presumably, a dossier, right? So I think he's looking through number six's dossier. Oh, okay. And the other one might be for the late number 113. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, I figured they were more like uh, like yearbooks where you can just look through and see all the... All right. Well, whatever the books are, they give him the information he needs. And he heads over to the war room with number 14, who is becoming his new henchman. You know, he declined assistance from number one early in the episode, but, but it seems number 14 is kind of filling that role when he's not mm-hmm. getting yelled at. <laughs> So number two gets over to the war room and he yells at the supervisor. He points out that it's not number six's birthday. 
and number 113 died a month ago. And was and, an old woman, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Number two asks him about the sunshine remark and the message, may the sun shine on you today and every day. The supervisor says, in a rather baffled tone, he says it means what it says. And uh, and this is a little bit of a connection to another episode we've seen already, The Chimes of Big Ben. I, I had to look it up. I knew I knew there was this was echoing something, but I had to look it up to remember exactly what. That's the episode where number six creates a modern art masterpiece. And when the judges are asking him about it, he says, it means what it is. <laughs> so that episode you had, it means what it is. This episode you have, it means what it says. Both of which also echo McGuin later, as we've said, when he was asked about the show, and that was basically his answer. <laughs> ah, yeah. <laughs> so, number two isn't satisfied with the poor supervisor's answer. He says, you're finished. He points to what seems a more or less random guy on the floor of the war room, and he says, you take over. And as number two is leaving, he hollers, I'll breach this conspiracy. And he leaves. Back in number two's office, number two reads a personal ad in the tally hole. Number 14 confirms that number six placed it. And this is that Spanish phrase, there's more harm in the village than is dreamt. Number 14 suggests that he could deal with number six without involving number two which is probably the best advice number two gets the whole episode. <laughs> of course, yeah, but number two says, well, you know, it, he's a plant, so they're going to know what happened. Yeah, but number 14 says that he can make it look like an accident. <laughs> number two ponders this a little in the emotions for number 14 to follow him out of the office. They get to the vestibule of number two's place, and number six enters just as they, they get there. Number six says that number two sent for him, he had phoned and said it was urgent. Number six says someone in this village is impersonating you. After it becomes clear that number two has no idea of what he's talking about, he didn't call. Number two says he has some calls to make. He's going to go back into his office. He tells number 14, I shan't need you. And he gives him, uh, he darts his eyes back and forth a little bit, you know, sort of conveying the message, do it, I interpret it as. <laughs> He's saying, go, go ahead and take him out if he can make it look like an accident. <laughs> when number 14 is alone with number 6 in the vestibule, 14 says he'd really like to dust you down. <laughs> number 6 says, nothing's stopping you. Number 6 suggests something. It, it sounds like Kasha to me. I'm not sure if that's what he actually says. But whatever it is that he says, the next thing you know, they're in an old-fashioned trampoline fight. <laughs> Yeah, I think we've seen this maybe at least once before. It certainly comes up several times in the series, although this was the episode they developed it for. So they made up this bizarre trampoline thing. I'll let you describe the apparent rules. But Kasha, there, there's a phrase they have. I don't have it in mind. But the word Kasha is used in some martial art, although the, that martial art apparently does not involve trampolines. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, good to know. They're in a gymnasium now, and there are two trampolines, and between them is a pool of water. It looks like maybe the goal is to throw the other guy into the pool. Right, and there's also a railing all the way around it, so they'll jump from the trampolines to the railing and back to the trampolines. Right, 
Right. It's actually, I think it's just on one side of it. Like we, if they, if they jumped <laughs> off one side, they'd be off the trampolines, but the other side, they'd be up on the little catwalk above them. It looks like the ultimate goal may be either to get the other guy wet or maybe actually to drown him. <laughs> In this case, it's a pretty short match and ultimately number six ends up with the upper hand and neither of them actually gets wet. They're on the railing, and he's holding number 14 upside down. It looks like he could drop him into the water and try to drown him, but then two other players show up and sort of interrupt them. Yeah, it it does seem sort of implied that these guys are preventing anything more uh, violent from happening. And, and, you know, I'll say, uh, we'll get to our story discussion later. To me, it would have made sense if they'd reversed what happened here. It would have made sense if number 14 was winning. And close to mm-hmm. drowning number six. But then the other guys show up and number two had already said, you know, we can't, number two obviously didn't want anyone to know what happened. So that would keep him from drowning number six. So that's right. kind of my version of the story. I think it makes more sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sure. They end up calling off the, whatever may have come next. They bow to each other and they're done for now. <laughs> Number six goes back to the grocery store, and he gets a small notebook, and he's looking at a cuckoo clock display. There are a few different sizes available, and the grocer recommends one of the smaller ones, but number six has his eye on a large one. I was impressed. at They have some eclectic customers of the store, apparently, because it's a store in this tiny little village, and they have a bunch of different cuckoo clock options. (laughs) What would be the odds? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's like the uh, penny farthing. Maybe it's some kind of something that's emblematic of the village. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, they have a whole table covered with various cuckoo clocks. Number six buys a large one for 42 units, but he, he seems more interested in the wooden box that the clock is supposed to be transported in than in the clock itself. He keeps playing with the, the hinged door on it that swings up and down. After he leaves, the grocer calls number two to report on number six's purchase and his behavior. He, the grocer was sharp enough to notice that number six seemed to be looking for a specific box. Next, we see apartment number six, the patio of it, where number six is sitting out there. And he combines the box with a pencil and a piece of a sandwich, which he throws into the open box. To make a trap, he props up the door of the box with the pencil. While he's waiting for something to happen with the trap, he carries the clock itself over to number two's door, the door that, you know, the main entrance right into the vestibule, and he leaves it propped up against the door frame. Number two and number 14 are in the war room watching the live video of this, and number two says, it must be a bomb. So and the, I thought this was a, a particularly clever one on number six's part, because especially in England, you know, over the decades mm-hmm. and the problems they had with the IRA and stuff, mm-hmm. the idea that something suspicious like that laying around, especially a clock, might be a bomb was a very realistic threat. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't take very long at all for the bomb squad to arrive <laughs> in their village wagons. <laughs> I don't know what the state of bomb disposal technology was at the time, but these guys are not prepared. (laughs) The totality (laughs) of their protection is they have gloves that they're not even wearing, and they have metal hats, which aren't going to help them at all if the bomb goes off. (laughs) And they just pick it up and put it in a box like, okay, anyway. (laughs) They've got buckets of sand 
so the I, I would think the sand would just weaponize the bomb even more, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> anyway, meanwhile, we see that a pigeon has found the trap. It keeps cutting back and forth between the two bits of high drama here. The bomb squad is working very cautiously to contain the cuckoo clock in their sand buckets, and the pigeon triggers the trap. It's not clear to me how it triggers it, because I don't see it brush up against the pencil. I think maybe just it's supposed to be the vibration of it getting into the box, but the, the yeah. door drops down behind it, and he's trapped in the box. As the bomb squad drives off, number six carries the pigeon and the box through the village. And then we get a view of a sandbag-lined room for dismantling or defusing bombs. Again, you have to wonder just how often do bombs come up in the village that they yeah. have a special <laughs> room for it. Yeah, they uh, you know, it's it's rare enough that they get a stone axe. <laughs> <laughs> but here here they have a sandbag-lined room and the technician is dismantling the clock. We see that the cuckoo's noises are made by a pair of small bellows. There are one of them for each note of the cuckoo's call, and each of these little bellows is on the end of a sort of stick. And the technician sort of plays with them. He's alone in the room, as if so he thinks, and uh, he treats them as dancing legs, <laughs> you know, with the bellows as feet. And they, every time a foot hits the table, they make their little notes. And number two enters. He looks very, very annoyed which seems to be a common emotion for him. <laughs> the technician doesn't say anything, but he just picks up another part of the clock. It's the, it's the a long wire where the, the cuckoo model itself perches. When it's time for the cuckoo to emerge, the wire would extend out through the doors. And he just picks up that wire perch, and he makes the bird bow to number two a couple times. As he does that, on the soundtrack, the background music, it plays some orchestral cuckoo notes. <laughs> While this may be a bit of a stretch, one could infer that there's some implication here that number two is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing about the last seconds of this scene is this is a really low-level guy, right? Most of the people that number two has been yelling at are management or, you know, kind of high up. Mm -hmm. This is just some guy in the bomb disposal unit. And he is looking at number two, like number two is crazy. So I right. think we're, you know, we're seeing that at this point, number two's reputation is spreading to everybody. <laughs> yeah. There's probably a little word of mouth going around about <laughs> number two. In the war room, number six is still walking in the wild with his little pigeon box. The new supervisor calls number two to tell him that number six is headed for a restricted area. Number two says, don't lose him. I'm coming right over. Number six sets down the box in the middle of a path. He writes eight numbers on a piece of paper from his new notepad. And the numbers are 20, 60, 40, 47, 67, 81, 91, 80. Which don't mean anything to me, but apparently it's a code that number two's decipherers are familiar with. We'll see that shortly. Number six folds up this little paper. He sticks it into a band on the pigeon's leg, and he sets it loose. The war room tracks the pigeon with radar, and they aim some sort of beam at it. Ultimately, they end up shooting it down, and they retrieve the message, and number two has his cryptographers decipher it. The result is 
Vital Message Tomorrow, 0600 Hours, by Visual Signal. <laughs> now, I wanted to talk about them shooting down the bird, <laughs> because <laughs> it turns out that they have a special, well, there's two things that I really noticed here. One is they can track a pigeon with radar, <laughs> like a pigeon is this little tiny thing, you know, <laughs> flying pretty low to the ground, and it's the only thing on the radar, so there's nothing else in the sky. <laughs> The other is that they have a special, basically, pigeon shooter downer. It's this this gun thing that's maybe a laser or something that rises up out of a flagpole. And they're about to obliterate the pigeon. And number two says, wait, wait, I just stun it. You know, <laughs> you don't want to destroy the message. I just thought that was pretty funny. All these little things. we, we just, So on the one hand, you know, they have bomb disposal people who, who just wear metal helmets. On the other hand, they have a, a laser ready to shoot down the nearest pigeon if necessary. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of just a grab bag of technology in the village. <laughs> Having deciphered the message, they wait for further developments. And at apartment six, this, is, this would be the next morning, close to 0600 hours. Number six heads down to the beach as number two is watching in the war room. And I, given what number two's been going through lately, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if he's just been up all night watching number <laughs> six. But in any event, on the beach, number six uses a little mirror to reflect flashes of the sunrise out toward the sea. Number two has the camera zoom in and tells the radar operator to find out who he's signaling to but the raider finds no ships and no aircraft. So then, number two does the logical thing and has the sonar check for <laughs> submarines. Which is actually not unrealistic in the sense that I think with a periscope, mm -hmm. w watching a signal from the shore may actually be something that submarines would have done, like in World War II. Yeah, sure. It, it, it is actually reasonably logical, although... Whether number six would have access to a submarine and all <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I could be wrong, but I like to think that if I were number two, I probably would have caught on a lot sooner. <laughs> but, but maybe I'm just flattering myself. <laughs> anyway, the Morse translation of the flashing light turns out to be patty cake, patty cake, baker's man, bake me a cake. As fast as you can. <laughs> so it could be that number six was signaling to Jessica Rabbit. Yeah. And I suspect this is going to be our first repeat pop culture audio clip. Hey, comfort, son. You're not the first man whose wife played patty cake on him. That would be not counting, you fool. <laughs> but then again, I'm not sure how deeply embedded in pop culture that one is. Yeah. <laughs> so the patty cake poem, the cryptographers translate it, and the message comes out unchanged. This is another one of those cases where uh, it means what it says, I guess. <laughs> Number two says, this is what you put in. And the cryptographer says, and that's what came out, sir. <laughs> and number two is really uh, steamed now. He says, yes, it is a new code, and the computer's not programmed for it. <laughs> He's very upset about that. And you're like, it's their fault that they don't know what the new codes are. So then we switch over to the cafe, where number 14 is having a quiet moment at a table. 
he kind of deserves it. He's been a little mistreated this whole episode. Yeah. Yeah. He deserves some downtime. Number six sees him though, and he goes over uninvited and he starts just blathering at number 14 about. Did you sleep well? I had another terrible night. Insomnia. Couldn't sleep. So restless. And there's no point in lying in bed when you're awake. Is there? What are you talking about? So I got up, went out. I had a long walk on the beach. It's marvelous at that time of the day. Invigorating. The air is brisk and clear. You must be out of your mind. The rain on your face. The wind on your cheek. Don't look now. The wait is watching you. Yes. It's all weird and pointless, but the object of it is to cast suspicion on number 14 just by association. Well, in particular, there's a waiter nearby who's listening, and number six even comments on this. And he says a little bit louder at the end. He says something like, well, I'm glad you agree with me on what we need to do. And then he walks away. <laughs> yeah. And number 14 even did mention while, while number six was going on, he, he said something about how uh, this was all pointless. See, that's not exactly what he said, but that was the upshot of it. Number six eventually leaves after having said a bunch of cryptic things. And, of course, the waiter, who has heard all this, rushes off to call up number two. And we get to see the consequences of that at number two's office. Number two is yelling at number 14. He says, you're working with number six, and I thought you were the one man I could trust. <laughs> Well, if he did trust him, he shouldn't have kept yelling at him the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not the way to really, it's not good team building there. <laughs> but uh, number 14 insists on his loyalty. And number two calls him a traitor uh, a couple times, and he slaps him, which prompts number 14 to leave the office. But number two's not done with him yet. As number 14 is leaving the office, number two runs after him to the vestibule, and he yells, you've lost, you and your friends. I'll break the lot of you. Which is uh, at least the third time in this episode <laughs> when he's threatened to break or breach something. And also the butler is standing there. You know, we've seen him in a number of episodes. He's a little person. But he's standing there, and number two throws him out as well, just uh, just for good measure, I guess. Well, yeah, and, and he says, leave this house, which the butler apparently takes very seriously because he then mm -hmm. packs up his stuff right to leave and i was thinking it was bad enough when he fired the supervisor we've kind of come to know but the butler is sort of just a genial guy never caused anybody any trouble so this is kind of one step too far to me <laughs> yeah yeah the butler seems to take it pretty stoically but then again you have to remember that he's actually number one <laughs> so uh so nothing that Could be. <laughs> this guy does to him uh, ultimately will matter that, that's my theory. I'm sticking to it for now until <laughs> I see contradicting evidence. In number six's apartment, he's listening to a record of classical music, which is a normal thing to do, but it raises the question, what about the omnipresent speaker? You know, we've been shown <laughs> in previous episodes that that speaker always has to be on, but apparently it's not always blaring something. Apparently, sometimes you can squeeze in your own environmental yes, or, audio or maybe since they seem to be encouraging music maybe it detects if you're playing music <laughs> yeah it could be yeah i could still override it for important <laughs> announcements like personal messages from number 113 i think you know the same way we have plot armor which is you know armor that deflects <laughs> bullets when it's necessary i think we have a plot radio <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's just it's it's necessary for the story so there it is <laughs> 
Well, in any event, he's listening to some nice music, and number 14 walks in and tells number 6 to turn it off. The number 6 replies with words from the grocery store sign that we discussed earlier. Uh, music makes for a quiet mind. <laughs> Number 14 reaches for the record player to turn it off, but number 6 grabs his arm to stop him, and the fight is on. And number 6 says, what's your problem? Number 14 says, you put the poison in. I'm finished. Number 6 replies, sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> in his very uh, understated British way, it was a well-delivered line, I thought. So they end up fighting through every room in the apartment. They they fight in the bedroom, they fight in the living room, they fight in the kitchen. <laughs> they even destroy the kitchen. Yeah, they bust up a lot of stuff. They tear the kitchen counter off of its supports. Though somehow they manage never to harm the record player. That then <laughs> keeps playing the music the whole time. And then finally, uh, number six eliminates number 14 through defenestration. He throws him <laughs> out the window. And I believe, I don't think we actually see it, if I remember right, but uh, I believe this is number 14's doom. I don't think he makes a reappearance after this. Yeah, yeah. So we, I, we don't know if he's dead or just fed up and then ran. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or in the hospital. He, you know, yeah. Whatever the case may be, uh, he's out of the story now. So back at number two's place, we get one more look in the vestibule, and we see that now the butler has donned his traveling derby, and he's picked up his suitcase, and he, and he leaves. And the hat looks good on him, won't it? No, oh, yeah, definitely. And then we see in inside uh, number two's inner sanctum, he's in there, and it's not really the, <laughs> the most impressive that he's looked in this episode, because He's cuddling with the big penny farthing in there like it's a security blanket. You know, he's got this giant 19th century bicycle that he's just sort of treating like it's his big teddy bear. <laughs> Number six enters and says, I've come to keep you company. Number two's friends have all left him. You know, he's just kind of uh, gently rubbing it in in the guise of being <laughs> sympathetic. Number six says he's there to talk, to listen. <laughs> Number two is is just so disheartened at this point that he's just kind of wallowing in self-pity. When six says, where is the strong man, the hammer? You have to be hammer or anvil, remember? <laughs> number two says, I know who you are. Number six says, I'm number six. And this is Which is interesting. That, yeah, since yeah. His, his whole point is to never accept that. <laughs> right, right. It's a, it's a rare occasion when he would... Admit to being number six outright without qualification. But number two replies, no, D6. <laughs> and this refers back to that very earliest message that started misleading number two, where it was signed D6. <laughs> number two believes that number six was sent by their masters to spy on him. Number six paces around number two's desk uh, a few times. He goes in a full circle around it. While number two is listing the things that number six has been up to, all the mischief he's been causing, and he concludes with, you didn't fool me. <laughs> number six says, maybe you fooled yourself, which is very close to the truth. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was actually a bit of a risky statement because he could be giving up the game by saying that. Right, right. If it, if it happened to just trigger the wrong thought, yeah, it could have <laughs> given the game away. 
Number two just goes on and expands his theory further, that number six was planted here by X04, and this again was mentioned in that original message that started the whole ball rolling. Number six says, and now he's he's taking on a very uh, scolding tone, you know, very uh, getting on his high horse. What would have been your first duty as an honest citizen? Not to interfere. There's a name for that. Sabotage. <laughs> Who are you working for, number two? <laughs> of course, number two protests for us, for us. Number six says, that's not the way it's going to sound to XO4. <laughs> you could be working for the enemy, or you could be a blunderer who's lost his head. <laughs> Which I didn't even realize until you said that. I mean, that's actually a correct statement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a blunderer who's lost his head, yeah. He says, either way, you failed, and they do not like failure here. Number two at this point is just a broken man, pretty much. He says, you've destroyed me. Six says, no, you've destroyed yourself. Number two asks number six not to report him. Number six replies that number two is going to report himself. Number six hands him that big red phone, the number yeah. one hotline. And number two sits down in his sphere chair that so many other number twos have <laughs> sat in. And he speaks into the phone. He says, I have to report a breakdown in control. There's a little pause after breakdown, which is uh, kind of amusing, you know, like a nervous breakdown, <laughs> mental breakdown. Number six turns and he begins walking out of the office, but he hasn't gotten to the door yet. And here's number two say, number two needs to be replaced. Yes, this is number two reporting. <laughs> and then number two weeps into the phone and curls up in the sphere chair. And that's the end of the episode. <laughs> I wanted to make a little aside here because it's something I noticed with just about every episode when I, you know, if, if I watch through to the end of the credits, I always notice this and I never remember to mention it. At the end of the credits... At the end of the end credits, they end on this very joyous, triumphant music. And, and the visuals that accompany it are rover emerging from the sea and bopping off along the waves. And it's just, it, it always makes me laugh because it seems to be like the show shouldn't be called The Prisoner. It should be called The Heroic Adventures of Rover. <laughs> because it always just, you know, as soon as Rover appears, they just play this joyous, you know, happy victory music it's, it just always strikes me as funny yeah, it's someone if they haven't that. already should should write like a short story of this from rover's point of view <laughs> <laughs> oh that would be good uh we might have mentioned before what always is a bit deflating to me at the very end after this is i think it's after this and the last image we see is a picture in every episode is a picture of the village and then Patrick McGowan's face zooming <laughs> toward the screen and then these bars, prison bars coming down. And for all of the production values they put into the show, these days, that's something that a 10 year old would do in Photoshop. Right? I mean, it's really bad. <laughs> it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very, it, it's like the, the face is, is, is just a cutout, like just a big <laughs> yeah. round head and there's something very comical about it just zooming in like it does even though it's you know very grim subject if you know right. what it signifies but 
but just taking it out of all the context, it just looks kind of funny. <laughs> Let's talk about this. I mean, like I say, it's so tight and so sort of on point that there's almost not much more to say than, than what we've described in the stories, as I said, right up front, I mean, really, it's just not a wasted second. It just starts mm -hmm. out and goes, and there is no fluff whatsoever in this thing. Yeah, it's good. It, uh, it holds your interest, or held mine anyway. <laughs> you know, the big question for me, uh, so I juggle two things here, which is, on the one hand, really interestingly and differently from most of the episodes, most of the episodes Number two is important and whether number two succeeds or fails, and we've seen them, you know, very often succeed and occasionally fail hmm. in some way it's their story, right? Because they're seeing if they can break number six, but since we're on number six's side and following him, it feels like number six's story. This one I would say is absolutely number two's story. Yeah. This is about yeah. him descending into madness. Mm-hmm. So my question is, does it happen too fast? I mean, he just seemed, I mean, the first thing or two that number six pulls on him, he just seems to fall apart. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah, it does. It does seem to accelerate real rapidly. Like it, it doesn't take a lot to get the whole ball rolling. But on the other hand, it's possible from that first scene where he was in the hospital room and, uh, you know, sort of being gleeful about screwing this lady over he had some kind of character flaws that were evident early on mm -hmm. and i think i think number six may just have detected a kind of weakness in this particular number two that wasn't necessarily present in a lot of the other ones like mm -hmm. the stuff that he tried on this guy a lot of the other guys they would have blown it off or they would have twigged to it right away like oh very <laughs> clever number six i see what you're trying to do <laughs> i think it may just be that you know number six's experience with spycraft and psychology and all that stuff uh, may have just sort of given him the opening to really play with those particular tactics more <laughs> than he might have chosen to do with other number twos so that yeah i mean it, it does seem to it does seem to ramp up very fast you're you're right about that but then again, that's part of a weakness of the of the format. You know, you've got a 50-minute show to check sure. all this into. Oh, but I would argue number six did so many things to him in this. And, and that, it's impressive, right? They didn't just do two or three or even four. I mean, he did six, seven <laughs> things. And he did a lot of stuff to, to number two. Yeah. And it, I, I just would have liked it a little more if the first couple times he had acted, like you mentioned, the others might have acted. If the first couple times he'd not paid attention or kind of let it bounce off him, and that the, like the third or fourth thing that number six did to him started to eat away. Right. But, um, yeah, right. he just, <laughs> yeah, they could have, uh, they could, they could have ramped it up a little bit more slowly, probably. Yeah. There's a game theory thing here. You know, we both played a lot of video games and also it's true kind of in the real world, which is one of the things that game designers always have to learn the hard way is any rule you put into the game the players can use it against the game. Right. So in this case, in the village, if they're going to watch his every move, and it's if we said if the village itself is very secretive, so its own employees don't know everything that's going on, mm -hmm. then he can use their surveillance and that secrecy against them. And so this whole story is him using the village and how it's set up against itself. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think uh, I mean I at the moment I can't uh, I can't cite particular examples, but I think you have plenty of instances of that being a big Achilles heel of repressive societies in general. Mm-hmm. The very climate that they create ends up you know making their downfall inevitable. Right. Well, one of the weird things about Iraq, you know, that they discovered afterwards, right? So there was the whole search for weapons of mass destruction. And one of the reasons at the time that everyone thought they existed is because the generals in Iraq thought they had weapons of mass destruction. They just assumed somebody else had them. <laughs> and it's very much like this in the village, right? So so they would pick up discussions and stuff by these generals where they were assuming they had them. Mm-hmm. And none of them knew that they didn't. <laughs> and of course, it would not have been in Saddam Hussein's interest to tell his generals that they didn't have them, right? So, oh, sure. Yeah, let them let them think we've got all the power that we can handle. <laughs> right. So uh, this story reminds me of a of a great movie, which also is unfortunately reflects kind of modern society. Um, have you heard of the Lives of Others? This is yes, I've seen. Ago. I've seen a lot of references to it just in the past few weeks, and it sounds good. It, it's about the Stasi, right? Yeah, so it's it's um, after the Berlin Wall falls, people, it's it's based on true stories, right? Or at least, you know, a, a, not specific true stories, but it's based on the real situation, which is after the Berlin Wall fell and documentation was made available for a period of time, I don't, I don't think it is anymore, people discovered all the people around them who had been spying on them. Hmm. And it turned out the way East Germany was set up, everybody was spying on everybody. And to the extent that you had people, the person they were married to had been instructed to marry them Hmm. in order to spy on them. So there were people who had gotten married and had kids and their partner was a spy. Oh, wow. And this was all discovered after the fact. And that's what, that movie is about and you know obviously it's very reflective of the village and these days with social media and the fact that you know anyone who said anything in their life at any time that is later Mm. deemed offensive that suddenly gets used against them i just think you know it all kind of yeah it all comes together yeah hey anything else about the story it was fun. It was uh, it, it was neat. And it, my, my, at first I was thinking, well, why doesn't he do this more often? But I, I think, like I said, uh, probably a lot of number twos, this, this wouldn't go very far mm-hmm. with. Yeah, yeah. He, de- he definitely detected that flaw <laughs> in the armor. So normally we talk about the actors, but there's, well, there's number 14, I guess, and he was fine, but he didn't have a lot to do. So really it's just number six and number two. And number two is an actor named Patrick Cargill, as we mentioned. And he had the sort of classic British actor thing where like he had done some stage and kind of gotten recognized there. And he got a TV show or two that he got pretty popular on and, you know, and, and he did this as, as a guest star and, and, uh, I thought he brought a lot to it. He, he was gay and he was never talked about that cause he didn't want to harm his career, mm-hmm. but he does seem to be someone who outside of not wanting to harm his career, you know, he's not someone who let that, um, be a problem for him. I mean, he seemed to live a good life and had partners and, and, you know, uh, and everything, which is good because uh, not only was being gay challenging everywhere in the sixties, but in Britain, there was a lot of bad stuff going on. So mm-hmm. if you could sort of live a normal life, that was a, a victory of sorts. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
I thought he was fun to watch, you know, how he would just sort of fly off the handle all of a sudden. <laughs> it was, uh, I, I thought he handled it well. I, I could, I could see this actor doing, playing more scene number twos <laughs> equally as <laughs> sure, well. Sure. Yep. But yeah, it was fun. A uh, good, good actor and a good episode, I thought. Okay. Okay. And next up will be It's Your Funeral. We will see you then. All right. Yeah.